welcome to New Spring Church, whether it's your first time or you're here every week. We just want to say thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. We're going to worship our God together and just sing praises to a great God that deserves our worth and deserves our praises. So let's just sing out together. We will sing, sing, sing and make music with the heavens. We will sing, sing, sing. Grateful that you hear us when we shout your praise. Live high the name of Jesus. All right, come on, let's hear it. Sing that with me. We will sing. We will sing, 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 and make music with the heavens. We will sing, sing, sing. Grateful that you hear us when we shout your praise. Live high the name of Jesus. Here we go. What's not to
welcome you too. Well, if it's your first time here and you want to tell us about yourself, please fill out the Talk to Us card you can find in the back of the seat in front of you with whatever information you feel comfortable. And you can either put it in the offering bucket as it passes by, or you can take it to one of our guest services. There's one in the front foyer as well as one back by the coffee shop, and they have a special gift they'd like to give you just to say thanks for coming. Well, our service is about an hour long, so the band is going to continue to lead us in song, and then Mark will come out and give us the next talk of Jonah. The message is called The God of Second Chances. Well, guys, thanks again for coming, and let's continue to worship together.
Is your hope in the Lord this morning? You know, we usually stop singing now, but we're not going to today. I get to pastor this great church, and of the thousands of people who come here, their stories. And I know some of you have been through an awful lot lately. You know, you had what you thought was a simple illness, and you found out it was a life-threatening disease, and now you're in the battle of your life. And I listen to New Springers who come home from work and find a note left. Their hope was in a, a man or a woman, and that man or woman walks out. Or your hope was in your kids turning out right and the kids going off the rails right now. And I just want to tell you today that if your hope is not in the Lord, life is going to put you in a place someday where your hope will have to be in the Lord or you won't have any hope at all. And so I just feel like we ought to tell, if our hope is in the Lord this morning, we ought to tell him that. I mean, take your mind off the boat for a moment. Take your mind off where you're going when this is over. Take your mind off of somebody you hope will pay attention to you and get a date with. Take your mind off your checkbook, what's in it, what's not in it. And just tell the Lord that your hope is in the Lord. There's a line I love out of this song so much. It's taken from Lamentations chapter 3 where it says, His mercies are new every morning. And if you had a bad day yesterday, well, His mercies are new today. And if you're having a bad day today, His mercies will be new tomorrow. And Andrew, I wonder, can you pick it up at that place where it says, His tender mercies, and if your hope is in the Lord, why don't you just let everything go right now and tell him so. Tell him so. Because it will mean so much to him. And I think it will mean something to you too. Can we just sing a little bit more this morning? I'll cut the sermon a little bit. If we, if we can do that. Andrew, if you pick it up there, let's do that again.
Jesus. God, we believe that. Our hope is in you. God, we just thank you for today. Thank you that we can come and worship you, Father. God, I just pray that today we get that. God, that we place our hope, our trust, our confidence upon you. Because you're so trustworthy, God. You never fail us. Father, we just thank you that we can come and worship you in a place like this. Lord, that we can gather as a body. And Lord, just sing praises to you, God. You're so worthy of our praises. We love you. We worship you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you all for singing with us. You can all take a seat. Well, it is great to welcome you to the fourth of five weekend services here at New Spring. In just a moment, I'll be back to bring you the talk, the third talk from the Jonah series. Um, this is probably one of the oldest titles I've ever heard. I, I grew up a pastor's kid in Texas, and um, I used to tell a joke, but you guys are mostly too young to know what this joke means. I used to say, my dad took me to every revival except Creedence Clearwater, but most of you don't know who Creedence Clearwater is. I, a few, I hear a few people here. Clearwater fans. Um, but today's talk is called The God of Second Chances. And thankfully, that's the God we serve. And so if I'm talking to anybody here that you've gone through a failure and because of that you feel like you're forever on the bench, um, I got good news for you. You can get off the bench today because we serve the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and 500th and 6,000th chances. And I'll be back to talk about him in just a few moments from the series, Jonah. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward and receive the offering now. And if you will, take a look at what's going on on the IMAX screens. Got some things coming up, and they could be something you'd be interested in, especially if you're a teen or you have someone in your life who's a teen. Some other things, too. I'll be back in just a moment to bring God a second chances. Thanks, guys. Y'all were awesome today. Appreciate it. We're about to hear a message from God's Word, so please, put your cell phones on silent. And if you have a child with you who starts to make noise, please step out to the foyer so that others may concentrate on the message without any distractions. Because of the 4th of July weekend, our 5.30 and 8.15 services on July 5th and 6th are canceled, but all our other services will remain the same. So make sure you join us at 4 p.m. on Saturday or on Sunday at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. To view a complete schedule of our weekend services, visit newspring.org schedule. You can be part of something big when you give to NewSpring, and it's never been easier. If you want to give by using your smartphone, just use your browser to visit newspring.org slash mobilegive. You can also give using your mobile device by downloading the Secure Give app. Just type Secure Give in the search bar of your app store and download it for free. You can always give when you're on campus by using a credit or debit card at one of our kiosks located around the building. If you'd like to give from home, visit where you can set up a one-time gift or an automatic recurring donation. The Fuse is a four-day summer event in Kansas City for high schoolers to get away with their friends, have a week of fun, and watch their faith grow. Each day will be its own unique schedule with theme park trips to Worlds of Fun, Oceans of Fun, and Schlitterbahn Water Park. There will be live worship, nightly talks from Mark Hoover, lead pastor of New Spring Church, and small group opportunities to connect you with new friends and talk about life and faith in God. 
You and your friends can expect events like tribal competitions, pool parties, horseback riding, zip lines, and so much more. So get away with us July 28th through the 31st at This Summer's Fuse. Save your spot now with a $75 deposit at thesummerfuse.com. Jonah, and right now we're in Jonah chapter 3, so if you have your Bible, electronic device with your app on it, uh, you can open to Jonah 3. Really, we're only going to cover two verses today. Isn't that good if you're, look, you know, if you're worried about a long sermon? Isn't it good to hear the minister say he's only going to do two, two verses, but then you guys know what I can do with two verses. So, uh, <laughs> but we're only looking at the first two verses of chapter 3. Uh, and the thing about it is, by the time Jonah's story gets to the beginning of chapter 3, he's been through a lot of stuff. Let's just re review real quickly in case you might have missed the first two weekends. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is a prophet. He's a prophet about 800 B.C. to the northern kingdom, Israel. And up to the point where God speaks to him in chapter 1, his life has been very easy. His calling is to be a popular minister. God has given him messages that people wanted to hear. And so Jonah has enjoyed the celebrity aspect and status of a guy who gets to communicate things that make people feel better about themselves. And there are many things that God has to say that do make us feel better about, about ourselves. But along comes God and God says to Jonah, I have a new assignment for you and I'll, here's your assignment. I want you to go 500 miles east to the city of Nineveh and tell them I'm very unhappy with them and if they don't straighten up, I'm going to destroy them. Now here's what you should know about Nineveh real quickly. Nineveh is the biggest city in the world, it's the most powerful city in the world. It's the most famous city in the world. It's the city where money is quick and happening, but it's an especially wicked and cruel city. They have invented all kinds of sexual ways to, to stimulate their appetites and to in, in, engage in all kinds of things that are, we, don't, we wouldn't even want to talk about today. But worse than that, they were extraordinarily cruel. And they thought up ways of torturing people that even to this day stand out as brutal, even by what we've seen in, in, in modern, modern days. And, and so for God to come to Jonah and say to him, I want you to go to them and tell them that I'm unhappy with their lifestyle. Just imagine for a moment if it was you and God said, I want you to go to Tehran or I want you to go to whatever city you can imagine in the world that you think is especially scary and tell them that what they're doing is wrong. And that's not something that we would want to do. And for Jonah, all he could think about was what's going to happen here is God is going to make his point and he's going to waste me. I'm going to go there. I'm going to make everybody unhappy. They're going to think of some deliciously cruel way to torture and kill me. God's going to make his point, and I'm going to die, and I don't see anything good coming out of that. And first of all, when God said to Jonah, I want to destroy Nineveh if they don't straighten up, Jonah's thinking, well, that would be a bad thing. I mean, after all, I mean, I got Jonah was saying, it would be the greatest thing in the world if you destroyed Nineveh. Why do I want them to straighten up? And so Jonah developed a plan on his own, which is sometimes what God followers do. When we hear what God wants us to do, we say, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. And so Jonah decided that instead of going 500 miles east to Nineveh, he would go down to the travel agent in Joppa, and he would buy a ticket for the westernmost point in the world, which was Spain. 
And as I said in week one, I'm sure that all the time Jonah was executing this plan, he expected God to strike him with lightning at any moment, but at least he thought I'll die quickly that way and I won't be tortured like the Ninevites would do. So he goes down to the travel agent in Joppa and he's buying his ticket, but he's looking over his shoulder for the bolt of lightning, but it doesn't come. And he gets his ticket for Spain, still no bolt of lightning. Goes down to the ship, starts to board, no bolt of lightning. Walks onto the ship, finds a, a hammock to sleep in. He's thinking, like I've heard many Christians tell me to the use, I'm going to get by with this. It's going to work. God had a plan. I had a better plan. I'm executing my plan. I'm going to be fine. But guys, I've told you over and over at New Spring, and this is true. It's true for me. It's true for you. Nobody flips God off and wins. That is the oldest story in the books. Nobody flips God off and wins. He's very big. And so Jonah, of course, at this point is flipping God off, and he thinks to himself, it is going to work. But as, as we saw in chapter 1, as the ship sails out into the sea, it sails into a storm, and no ordinary storm. We saw that the Hebrew word for storm in chapter 1 is the word for hurricane. Jonah and the crewmen, the mariners, innocent mariners, have steered right into a hurricane, and the hurricane threatens to explode the ship. The mariners, pagan though they were, they, this was the pre-modern world, so they did have some sort of deity that they worshipped, or deities plural. And so they begin to cry out to their deities to find out who had upset the God that caused the storm. And even though their methods and their ways of finding out were ridiculously false, God managed them and by doing so pointed the finger at Jonah and Jonah finally said, okay guys, it's my fault. I'm a Hebrew, I fear God, this storm is my fault. Get rid of me, throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. And Jonah thought that was what was going to happen. They would throw him overboard, he'd drown in a matter of minutes, and his life would be over. But you and I know the rest of the story. God sends along a whale or a fish or a whale shark or some sort of sea creature. I have no idea what it was. Guess we'll find out when we get to heaven. God kept it on video. But we'll get, anyway, Jonah gets swallowed, and he's there for three days and three nights in the whale. Now, Jonathan talked to you about this last week. And he said that during the time that Jonah was inside the fish, well, whatever, that he prayed. And, and I wanted you to hear that, especially because in, in a Christian world, or especially in a church world, as some of you have come from traditional churches, sometimes we make fun of people who pray when they get into trouble. It's like, oh, you're in trouble, so you pray. And we joke about 11th hour conversions or jailhouse conversions. I'm old enough to remember the Watergate scandal and several of the players in the Watergate scandal came to faith. And I remember the, the running joke that was in the media in those days that these Watergate figures are finding Jesus. Guys, let me just tell you something. I'm glad when anybody finds God, whether it's in a jailhouse or the 11th hour or the third hour or the fourth hour. Or anything. And by the way, how many of us have had to go through a difficult experience before we were ready to talk to God? And so Jonah in the well's belly for three days, three nights, he finds time to pray. And in this prayer, he tells God, I know I've been wrong. I know I've screwed up. I ask you to forgive me. And at the end of chapter two, the Bible just simply says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, I've known this story since I was a little kid growing up in church. To me, that always sounded kind of wretched. I mean, the well vomited Jonah up. Now, listen, guys, I love the beach. But this isn't a good beach experience. Just trust me on this. I mean, I know you got lunch coming up, so I'll try to be as genteel as I can. But you realize Jonah's been inside this, this sea creature, and he's covered with slime and seaweed and partially digested stuff. 
and for this well to upchuck Jonah on the beach. I just see him there covered with all this good, with his face between his knees, sitting on the beach. And there's only one word to sum up what Jonah, that, that moment, and that's the word failure. Or some of you come from a technical background, and you might use the term mission failure. That's Jonah. He's failed. And think about this. He's been thrown overboard by the sailors. He's been thrown up by the fish. It's like nobody wants him. The sailors have thrown him away. The fish has thrown him away. And Jonah is a prophet of the true God. And let me just tell you how Jonah would interpret this. Jonah added two and two. Now, he may have gotten 22, but he added two and two. And here's how he looked at this. He's saying this, the, the sailors throwing me overboard and the fish throwing me up, that's a metaphor. That's God's way of saying, Jonah, I'm finished with you. I am throwing you away. Glad you got right. Glad you asked for forgiveness. But I'm throwing you away. This, the, the sailors throwing you in the water, the fish up chucking you on the beach. Jonah probably interpreted that as this is God's way of saying, Jonah, I am finished with you. You failed. Did you ever fail? I'm not talking about, you know, you made a B, good, not excellent, or a C, you're average, or a D, you need improvement. But I'm talking about an F. You ever fail? I mean, failure means that you got to take class over again. Failure can mean you can get kicked out of school. Failure can mean you can lose your scholarship. And again, I'm not just talking about academics because many of us know what it's like to fail in some academic aspect. Have you ever failed in your career? Have you ever failed in a relationship? Maybe you failed in a marriage. And all of us who are God followers, I think, and I'm not just talking about having a bad day where you slip up. I'm just talking about how many of you have had a season of failure when you just went through a season of your life when you knew you were a million miles away from God even though you were a God follower. I can't speak for you, but I can tell you what I've thought at those moments. I mean, I've never been like Jonah, sitting in slime with my head in between my knees on the beach, but I mean, I've sort of been there metaphorically. And, and what I've thought at that moment is, what do I do now? I mean, you know, when you're, when you're large and in charge and you're buying a ticket for, uh, for Tarshish, you, know, you sort of know what to do. But when it crashes and burns on you, what do I do now? That's an odd place where Jonah is. He's forgiven, but given up on, at least in his mind. Now work with me for a moment, because when Jonah's at this moment, some of my favorite words in the Bible come to him. And if you haven't, as a God follower, fallen in love with this line, I hope you will today. It's in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, where the Bible simply says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Pregnant in that statement is this full meaning of Jonah, I'm not finished with you yet. Jonah, we still have work to do. Jonah, your life isn't over. Or maybe the best way of saying it, it was God saying, Jonah, I'm still here. I'm still here. Our God is the God of second chances. I've always said the thing I love best about God is that he is the only one who will let you truly start over. Because if you've ever screwed up in life, even the people who love you the most will still remember what you've done wrong. But God has said, not only will he forgive you, he will forget. And, and you see, this is the thing, and, and maybe this doesn't even belong in the message today. I promised to cut something so we could sing that song. Maybe I should cut this, but it just stands out to me that it's kind of ironic when you think about it. We would expect that God would be the one who wouldn't give us a second chance, and people would give us a second chance. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because when we fail, it makes sense that people who failed, they should forgive us. They failed. 
On the other hand, God's never had, he's never failed. God's never had an uh-oh moment. God's never said, I'm sorry, my bad. God's never had that moment. He has never failed at anything. So it just makes sense when you think about it. If the world works the way we thought it would, people would give us second chances and God wouldn't. And yet how ironic is it that the God who's never failed gives us multiple chances and people who fail all the time won't. Just kind of strange when you think about it. Well, anyway, when you study the Bible, you're going to discover that many of the people in Scripture had their most effective moment and sometimes their best moments after they fell. And I'll give you a little list here. Moses, Peter, prodigal son, Samson, Jacob, some of them we're going to talk about. Let me make a dangerous statement. And I pray that you listen to the whole context of this, because if you just hear this statement, you could walk out of here and get the wrong impression. But here's the statement. Sometimes failure is the best thing that can happen to us. Sometimes failure is the best thing that can happen to us. Now, let me tell you why that statement's dangerous. Somebody could be listening to that talk, to that statement here today, and, and you, you're doing something that's really not smart. And others have told you that it isn't going to end well, and you know in your gut it's not going to end well. And if you're out there in that, in that context, you could say, oh, well, I'm okay. Mark said failure is the best thing that could ever happen to me, so I'm going to go ahead and blow up my life. Before you do that, let me, let me give you this clarification. There is nothing good about failure in itself. I mean, Jonah's failure here, it embarrassed God. It caused him pain. He went through all kinds of trauma. He spent three nights in a well motel. Um, he brought innocent mariners into his storm. He suffered all kinds of difficulties. So I think Jonah would be the first one to tell you there is nothing good in failure by itself. But although failure isn't good, failure can have some awesome byproducts. And it's those byproducts that can sometimes make failure the best thing that could ever happen to us. By the way, I put the verb can in there because not everybody experiences these things. You and I know people who fail all the time and they don't ever seem to grow or learn from it. Let's talk about those byproducts, two byproducts of failure, and then we'll go home today. But the most important byproduct of failure is this. Failure humbles us. Well, somebody's saying, Mark, can that be good? Is it, is, I would think being humbled is a bad thing. In fact, I know people who think that being humbled is the worst thing that can happen to them. But it's not. It's not a bad thing to be humbled. I'll tell you why. Well, let, let the Bible tell you why. In James chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, when we are proud, in fact, the word for opposed there in the Greek means to go to war against. When we're large and in charge and we're making our decisions and we're running our plans and we're doing what I want to do, we may feel like we're having a great day, but we're not having a good day. We're having a bad day because God is up in heaven saying, I'm going to go to war against her. I'm going to go to war against him. You see that guy in chapter 1 in Jonah? You see Jonah heading down to Joppa to the travel agent, buying a ticket, picking a destination, getting on the boat for Spain. There's not a thing in the world that God can do for that guy except to oppose him, and God will. God will oppose him with a hurricane and with a whale. Do you see that guy sitting in slime and ooze and goo on the seashore with his head between his knees? God can help him. In fact, the Bible says, I want to give it to you one more time, God goes to war against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Giving grace means God giving us what we don't deserve. 
See, if you will be humble before God, God will give you opportunities you don't deserve. God will give you favor that you don't deserve. God will give you gifts and, and resources that you don't deserve. When you, are, when you and I are humble before God, God gives us the essence of what we need for success. When we're proud, he goes to war against us. Hey, this is a good time for me to say that you don't actually have to fail in order to hum be humble. You can actually humble yourselves. In fact, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the power of God, the mighty power of God, so at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Jesus said it this way, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And by the way, let, let's talk about what it means to be humble, okay? Because I know some people, especially in traditional churches, have the idea that being humble means you go around looking like you have a liver condition. You know, like going around head down, I'm so bad. I, no, I, I don't ever do anything. No, that's, that's not humility. Sometimes that's backhanded pride. Humility sounds like this. God, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? Humility sounds like other people are more important than me. I'm the universe doesn't revolve around me. I am here to serve people. I'm here to serve God. That's what humility sounds like. Now, the thing about it is you don't have to experience failure to go there. You can go straight there by your own choice. But it's very hard to do. And most of us don't do it for a couple of reasons. Number one is we sort of do think, even though we don't want to communicate it, that the universe does revolve around us. And we sort of interpret most things that happen as a referendum on us. And the second thing is, deep down inside of us, especially men, I think women too, but especially men, we think we know what to do. We think we, we have the plan. If other people will just get out of our way and the resources are there, we think we could execute the plan that will lead to success. And because of those two elements, it's sort of hard for us to humble ourselves. And so we go through an experience in which it all blows up on us, and we sit there in the broken pieces of it. And guys, let me just tell you this. I've been there personally. I've been there with thousands of people in 37 years of pastoring. Here's how it sounds. When we're large and in charge and everything is going our way and we're full of ourselves, we can feel like, oh, I'm having a great day. I'm getting my way. It's a great day, but it's not a great day. It's a terrible day. On the other hand, I've seen people sit in my office with their face in their hands broken and crying, I've seen guys sit and shake, weep so hard they were shaking in my office because life had fallen apart and they were just saying, Mark, I've really screwed up. I'm just ready to do whatever God wants me to do. And if I were to ask him at that moment, he would say, I'm having the worst day of my life, but he's not. He's having one of the best days of his life. Because see, when we're high, we're really low. When we're low, we're really about to be exalted. So failure can be one of the best things that can ever happen to us because Failure has a way of humbling us. But when life falls apart on us, we have a choice to make. And you know, when I give you these two words, it's going to sound like that's a very narrow choice, but it's not. These are polar extremes. So work with me for a moment. When you fail and your life falls apart and you're sitting in the broken pieces, the ruins, the broken pieces of the choices and decisions that you've made, you have an important choice to make. You can decide to be humiliated or you can decide to be humbled. Now, those two words sound similar, don't they? Humiliated and humbled. I assure you, there's a universe of difference between them. Because here's what it means to be humiliated. When we're humiliated, we feel like something's been done to us. We feel like we've been robbed. And mentally, as far as we're, we're thinking, I really should be up here, but life has put me down here. So mentally, you know, I'm up here, but life has put me here. I'm angry because I've been humiliated. 
When we're humiliated, we tend to respond with vengeance and defensiveness and anger, bitterness. On the other hand, when we're humbled, it's like we've gotten a fresh look at who we really are before God. And so when you get to that place where you, where you failed and you, your life is right there presenting you all the broken pieces of your failure, you can decide, am I going to be humiliated by this or am I going to be humbled by this? Because here's the beautiful thing. If you decide to be humbled by it, you're in great shape because humbling repositions us. That's a term we use in business a lot, right? Because our culture is changing so quickly in business and a lot of careers are drying up and blowing away. So we, oftentimes we talk about being repositioned for success. Humbling, being humble before God repositions us before success. I mean, that is the reason sometimes why God has to allow us to be humble is so that we can be repositioned. Jonah now is repositioned. He's sitting on the beach. He's covered in goo and slime, but he's repositioned as we're going to see next week for the greatest moment of his life. Look, I'm not trying to blow sunshine at you this morning. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. If you've been humbled by life and you let God work and teach you in that moment, you may feel like this is the worst time of your life. It could be that you're entering the best season of your life. And I'm not, again, I'm not blowing sunshine at you. I'm just telling you, 6,000 years of recorded Bible history confirmed that. Well, I, I, I made a statement, dangerous though it were. I said, sometimes failure is the best thing can happen to us. And first byproduct is that failure humbles us. Here's the second one. Failure teaches us. And you don't need a minister to tell you that. We have expressions hardwired into our English language that teach us that all the time. We, we call this a, sometimes we call it a teaching moment. What is a teaching moment? It's failure, but it has the opportunity to show us something that, as John Maxwell said, allows us to fail forward. Uh, school of hard knocks, learn the lesson the hard way, sadder but wiser. These are all expressions that we've had in the last 75 years to talk about the fact that failure can teach us. Well, <clears throat> You see Jonah in chapter 1, large and in charge, going down to buy his ticket. You see Jonah at the end of chapter 2, sitting in slime and goo on the beach. There's, only, there's one thing that's inescapable. That guy in chapter 2, he's smarter than the guy who left Joppa. Three days in a well has made him much smarter. Let me give you three things that failure teaches us, and then we'll go home. Here's the first one. Failure teaches us what leads to failure. Isn't that true? I mean, a, a smart person, if he or she fails... We'll analyze that, do a post-mortem on that failure, and he or she will learn, okay, that's what caused me to fail. And I may, I may fail in some other area, but I'm not going to do that again. You know, someone has said the definition of insanity is performing the same steps that led to failure, expecting a different outcome. But when we fail, if we will, we can learn what leads to failure. I'm going to hop around the Bible for a few moments, and I want to take another character from Scripture that really teaches us that. You remember the story of the prodigal son? It's a story that Jesus told about a, a rich farmer who had a couple of kids. And the younger kid had a real rebellious attitude. And he said to his dad basically this, I don't want to wait till you die to get my inheritance. I'm young. I want to enjoy life. Give me my money now. It was a horrific thing to say. But the father did. The father, by rights of primogeniture in those days, the younger son would get one-third of the estate. And so the father turned over one-third of his estate, which would have been cattle and land and holdings. And the stupid kid just liquidated everything. No doubt he lost a fortune doing that. The stuff that his father had taken a lifetime to earn, the kid just basically turned it into cold cash and decided to go as far as he could get away from home. And according to the testimony of his older brother, which isn't, which isn't disputed, 
He spent his money on prostitutes and partying. And then he ran out of money. And when he, when he couldn't provide his friends with drugs and, and women, they didn't want anything to do with him. And the only job he could get was feeding the hogs. Now, guys, I don't know how many of you have a background in agriculture. I grew up in the city, and my grandfather was a farmer in South Texas, and so I did slop the hogs with him a few times. It's a wretched experience. <laughs> I gotta tell you this, I didn't see anything in that trough I wanted to eat. <laughs> but the Bible says that this poor kid was so hungry that he almost ate with the hogs because nobody would give him anything to eat. Now, it's at that moment that he has a learning moment, a teaching moment. He said to himself, you know what, my father's, my father's hired people. They have plenty to eat and to spare, and I'm dying of hunger. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to say to my dad, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. Would you just hire me as a day worker? What did that young man learn in failure? He learned what led to failure. He basically is saying, I put myself here. My attitude put myself here. And I'm here in this hog pen because my choice led me here. I'm going to go back home and say to my dad, Dad, I have learned from failure. Next time when I'm at home, I'm going to be a different person. And I really believe that's what God is looking for from us. God, you know, we saw already God is the God of second chances. And oftentimes failure gives us an opportunity to learn what leads to failure. So we don't fail at least in that anymore. The second thing that failure teaches us quickly is that failure teaches us about ourselves. Many of our failures come about because we think we can achieve more than we can achieve, especially on our own. It's like, I can do that. And failure teaches us what our limitations are. When I think about that, I think about Moses. Moses, and real quickly, just to give you a little background story on Moses. Moses was born at a time when the Israelites were living in Egypt, but there was hostility between the leaders of Egypt and the Israelites because the Israelites at first were sort of a cute people group that were in the country, but they were proliferating so fast that the Pharaoh was concerned that maybe the Israelites would outnumber them. So he began to assign them brutal slave labor, such brutal slave labor building the pyramids that Pharaoh was hoping they would kill themselves and die young. But they weren't dying fast enough. And so Pharaoh decided upon another plan, and that plan was that all boy babies should be thrown into the Nile. Well, there was a woman back in those days named Jochebed who was a very innovative woman, and she decided that, yes, indeed, she would obey the Pharaoh and throw her son in the Nile, but before she did, she would build a boat for him. And so she took a basket, made it watertight, put Moses inside that, and put him out there in the reeds uh, in the shallow water, put his older sister out there to watch him. And along comes Pharaoh's daughter. The princess hears a baby crying, sees Moses hurt, you know, sort of goes out to him. She decides she's going to adopt him. And moms, and one of the coolest things that ever happened in the Bible, Moses' mom got paid to raise him. Wouldn't that be great to get paid to raise your own kids? <laughs> but he grew up with the adopted daughter of the Pharaoh, which means he grows up in Egypt. He grows up a prince. He grows up in, in you know, wearing Armani suits and driving Bugattis. I mean, he, he grows up in the best kind of world. He's eating like an Egyptian, talking like an Egyptian, learning like an Egyptian, walking like an Egyptian. <laughs> just want to see how many of you are around in the 80s. <laughs> but enjoying this cushy lifestyle, Moses sees his people, and all of a sudden he starts to feel his Jewishness. And it's like, well, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be Batman. In the daytime, I'm going to be mild mannered Bruce Wayne, Prince of Egypt. At night, I'm going to put on the cape, and I'm going to go out and do business and deliver my people. Well, I don't have time to, to, to develop this, but it's sort of interesting because he's getting very close to what his ultimate calling is, but he's listening to me, heads up. 
He's thinking he's going to do it on his own. And it turns out to be a disaster. He goes out one night. Sure enough, he finds an Egyptian pushing one of his people around. And Moses steps in with, you know, the Cape Crusader. And he winds up killing the Egyptian. But Moses thinks he's safe because, after all, his Hebrew friend isn't going to rat on him. Or will he? Yeah, he does. And now Moses winds up a fugitive. You know, if you study the life of Moses, he lived 120 years, and his life can be, his life can be divided neatly into three 40-year sections. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he's the prince of Egypt. The second 40 years of his life, he's nobody on the backside of the desert. And the third 40 years of his life, he's the Moses we know about. By the way, if you're feeling old, realize Moses didn't even get rolling until he was 80. Look, I don't want to put words in Moses' mouth. But if you look at the first 40 years of his life, it's like Moses is saying, I can do anything. If you look at the next 40 years of his life, he goes too far the other way. It's like I can do nothing. In fact, when God calls him, God had to basically shake him loose from his sense of inability. But in the third 40 years of his life, Moses learned what he could do through Christ, through God. I love you very much today. I'm so glad you came to hear this message. So please hear what I'm about to say in love. On your own, you can do so much less than you think you can. With God, you can do so much more than you think you can. Am I talking to somebody here and you've tried to make things happen on your own and like Moses, it's just turned out to a fiasco? Well, 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 don't give up and think that you're a loser like Moses did the second 40 years of his life. Maybe you're trying to do things in your own strength. I don't have time to tell the story. My dad went to be with the Lord about a year ago. But the, I heard my dad give this story so many times when I was a kid growing up as he preached. Dad would tell a story, and this is an old story about a farm, about a farmer and his son who were moving rocks. And uh, they got, the kid was signed to, to pull up a rock, and it was too big for him. And, and the kid came to his dad and said, I can't pick up that rock. And his dad said, sure you can. You're not trying hard enough. So he went back and he tried harder and he still couldn't. He said, Dad, I, I've tried and I can't pick up the rock. And the father said, well, son, you haven't used all your strength. And he went back and he tugged at the rock with everything he had. And he said, Dad, I've used all my strength and I can't pick up the rock. And finally the dad said, no, son, you haven't used all your strength until you've asked me to help. That old story my dad told still works, doesn't it? Because a whole lot of us have tried with everything we've got, and we still fail. Here's the thing. You can do so much less than you think you can on your own. You can do so much more with God. Failure teaches us about ourselves. And I'll close with this. Failure teaches us about God. I told you I wanted to just share two verses with you, and if you've been keeping score, you know I've only given you one. So let's look at that second verse right now. Go back to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. We've seen that. Here's the message. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Okay, if I haven't told you anything worth driving to New Spring for yet today, I'm about to give it to you. Ready? Here's what you should know about God. It's, it's like there's so much about God in God's statement to Jonah. It's almost like it's a set of parentheses. Because on one side, we see one aspect of God's nature. On the other side, we see another aspect. The first parenthesis is God saying, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and do what I ask you to do. <laughs> Notice that God didn't come to Jonah and say, Jonah, I, you know, the last three days while you've been in the well, I've been thinking about this. I know you weren't real happy with that first assignment I gave you. You've been thinking about this. I think I got something you might like a little better. 
I think <laughs> deep down inside, that's how some of us think God is. If I screw up at this and I don't quite live up to God's expectations, then maybe God will grade on the curve and only ask me to do half what he asked me to do. No. If God asks you to do something, he wants you to do that. See, that's the thing. Will, will he forgive us if we fail? Yes, but he doesn't change the assignment. I'm going to be talking to a man here today, and you, you're, you're a God follower, but your life has been just like, you've been through the sewage of pornography, and you wrestle with that. You say, well, Mark, will God forgive me? Absolutely. Still doesn't want you to look at pornography. You say, Mark, I, bl I blew up a relationship. I had an affair. I had committed adultery. Will God forgive me? Absolutely. Still doesn't want you to commit adultery now. You say, Mark, I, 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 I got off the rails and then started like over abusing substances that are bad for me. Will God forgive me? Absolutely. He just doesn't want you to abuse substances. When we fail, God doesn't dumb down the curriculum or grade on the curve. God said to Jonah, still want you to go to Nineveh. I haven't changed. And now the other parentheses. Did you notice that God never said anything when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time? Did you know God never said anything to Jonah about his failure? I mean, now listen, if God had talked to Jonah the way that a lot of us, our parents, talk to our kids, we'd say, now, you know what, buddy? I'm going to ask you to go to Nineveh again, but if you screw up again like you did the last time, you know, when you went down to Joppa and you bought that ticket for Spain and you got on the ship and I had to send the hurricane, you do that again, you think that last twelve was big. You wait till you see the next twelve. <laughs> That's sort of how we expect God to talk. And do you realize God never said a word to Jonah about his failure? I learned this last year. Last September, I was bringing a series uh, called Road Trip. And we were talking about the life of Abraham. Some of you may have been here then. And I told you that Abraham, is, his story is in 25 books of the Bible. And his contemporaneous story is told in the book of Genesis. And, and, and one week, I was telling you about a colossal screw-up of Abraham. He, he's called the father of faith, but he did something really unfaithful. He married another woman, had a baby by her, blew up his home. A lot of crazy stuff. And I got to thinking about that. There's 24 more books in the Bible that mention Abraham after that moment. And I realized God never again brings up his fall. He just talks about Abraham in glowing terms. I thought, that's interesting. And then I started thinking about other people in the Bible. And I thought about David. There's a guy that had an affair with his next-door neighbor's wife and had his next-door neighbor whacked. And we, we talked about him in a series called The Thing last year. And I thought... Wow, that's the kind of thing that God would bring up from time to time, and yet David's story is told contemporaneously in 2 Samuel 11, and yet he's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, and God never brings up his sin again. And that got me thinking. Well, there's all kinds of people in the Bible who did all kinds of wrong things, and the Bible tells us honestly in that contemporaneous moment what they did, but they're mentioned later. Does God ever bring up later things that people did in the past? I thought about Samson. Jonathan's going to talk about him in a series coming up called Say Goodbye to Superman. Samson had a thing for Philistine women, never did get it conquered, blew up his life because of it. And yet when you read about Samson in Hebrews chapter 11, he's called one of the heroes of the faith. I asked a good friend of mine who's been communicating as long as I have as a pastor of a great church. I said, have you ever thought about the fact that when someone sins in the Bible and they ask God to forgive them, that God never brings it up again later in the Bible? He said, never thought about it. But it's true. <coughs> no. As strange as it sounds, it seems that if you'll bring your sin up to God, he'll never bring it up to you again. You ever thought about that? 
I'm talking to a woman here. You did something 15, 20 years ago, and it eats you up. And, and, and it's like your life just stopped right there. And it's like you feel the guilt of it. The guilt keeps you awake at night. You know, many of us who have been traditional churches, we think guilt's one of the sacraments. It's not. God never tries to accomplish anything by guilt. He wants you to feel sorry for your sin, learn from it, move on. If you'll bring your sin up to God, he'll never bring it up to you again. Do you see that in Jonah and God's second chance? God is saying, Jonah still wants you to do what I asked you the first time, but I'm not bringing up your failure. Just go on. And in chapter 3, next week, by the way, what a great message we've got next week. We're going to talk about what would it be like if your, if your life, if your plan and God's plan came together and synced up. What would it be like if you lived life in a sweet spot? That's next week's message. But for today, I just want you to enjoy the fact that your God is a God of second chances. Some of you have stopped functioning because of something that happened in the past. Let it go. Give it to God. Put it under the blood of Jesus. Get up and roll on. God still wants you to do what he asks you to do. He's not bringing up the past. Let's move on. He is the God of second chances. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon.